The readings from 1 Peter 2, 1 to 10. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The living stone and a chosen people. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's my fun one? Raywin for reading that so beautifully. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? And I want to start with asking you, uh, why are we here? Why are you here? For some of us, I know we're good pizza. Others of you are curious and you want to see what we're all about. Uh, but there are actually more places that are slightly more hip with probably people who you know better to eat pizza with and check out um, places on a Sunday afternoon. But the real reason I am asking you that is, why do we go to church? Why do we bother to take precious time out of our weekends to meet together? What is the function of us meeting as a church? These are really important questions to ask because otherwise we become automatic robots and we turn up to church out of religious habit. And then one day when we feel like, oh, I actually don't feel like going along today, you might just, and you can't answer the question as to why you do go to church um, you might just stop going and you might decide that doing the Christian life is going to be okay on your own at home um, or might want to ditch it altogether. So it's actually important to ask these questions so that we don't end up turning into these religious kind of robots. But to answer why we go to church, we have to ask, who are we? Now, is this going to work? Yes, who are we? Uh, once we know who we are, um, once we know who we are, then we can begin to answer why we do what we do, why we're we meeting here together. So it's kind of a two-way street. Function comes from form. In this four-part series that we're tackling at the beginning as we meet together as Abide, uh, we're going to look at who are we and therefore why do we meet together. 
And to do this, we need to situate ourselves in the big biblical story, in the, in the context of scripture, because this gives us a biblical context. And some of the women here will have heard me talk about the fact that every successful culture um, has three spheres of reference. Uh, there is firstly um, the big story, which is the meta-narrative, the meta-narrative is like the, the fancy word for this. And for this, for us, this is like the big story of scripture, uh, where we are called God's people. The next contextual sphere that every culture, healthy culture has um, in their identity is a smaller sphere within that bigger one, which is a, represents a particular group, um, and it's called our story. And for us, that might be the Church of New Zealand, or it might be us as Abide Church. Uh, then they have their my story within those other two uh, spheres. Your story, and your story, and your story, and my story. And the big story meets our need for transcendence. We have this desire to connect with God, don't we? And whether we recognise it or not, and I love this quote that I saw on someone's wall just recently, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And in their, our story, they find their meaning and transcendence. Sorry, their meaning and purpose. And in their my story their individual identity, which is based within the context of these two spheres. So there's a lot of context going on here. And this context and relationship is actually really crucial because if it's lost, if there's a death of the bigger two stories... Um, it took me a long time to do that. <laughs> I'm not as techy as Michael. Uh, if, if we are forced, what we're forced to do is then create our own identity. We're forced to invent who we are. We look to ourselves for transcendence, for meaning and identity. And our culture is very good at telling us to invent ourselves, to discover who we are, to make ourselves, aren't they? And that's why we're taking the time in this, these first few weeks as a church to establish who we are as a Bide Church, to wrestle with the questions of who are we and why do we do what we do, And we need to remind ourselves of the big story and who God says we are, first and foremost. Why we are here. And we've chosen to to, uh, base this series, this short series, four weeks, uh, in the book of 1 Peter, which we heard Raywin speak from so beautifully before. And we're going to look at different parts of this passage over the next couple of weeks. And today I'm going to focus on uh, 2 verse 9. Which is that glorious passage, 1 Peter 2 9. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you are God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And this verse really speaks to our identity, doesn't it? Who we are and why we meet together. And so today I'm going to look at the big picture, the big circle, um, the, uh, the big identity is God's people and what it means to be God's chosen people, specifically a royal priesthood. And next week, Graham is going to explore what it means to be a holy nation and what does it mean to be holy people individually. I've had a preview already, and it's it's a cracker. Uh, And then next, and then the following week, Michael Monk is going to talk about what it means to be chosen and forgiven and how that shapes our identity as God's people. And then I'm going to close the series by drawing a couple of things together and then looking at who are we as Abide Church? What does the word abide mean? What does it mean to abide? and why we've kind of chosen that as our name. And that's really looking at the smallest, oh, sorry, at the middle sphere, the our story. So hopefully for you, that will paint the, the, a bit of context, the three spheres, so that we can locate and contextualise ourselves. 
Um, we're all individuals, aren't we? But we are in this together. So that's where we're going. Does that sound okay? Awesome. So let's pray as we launch into this. It's okay. Kids can make noise. They're wonderful people in our midst. <laughs> we welcome them. Father God, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that um, you have drawn our minds and our hearts towards you. Lord, I ask that you would breathe your life into these words that I have prepared. We ask that you would touch everyone's hearts where they need to be touched from you. Would you show us what it means to be a royal priesthood? I can say words, but only your spirit can give them any life. So we, we thank you for who you are and that you are here today. Amen. So today, to begin the task of answering who we are in the big picture, I'm going to talk about ancient priests, stone uh, elephants drinking milk, and fire on heads. Well, heads on fire actually sounds a bit better. So what does God mean when he calls us his chosen people, his royal priesthood? That language isn't really that familiar to us these days, is it? When someone meets you at a party, you don't often say, hello, my name's Becca, I'm part of the royal priesthood. You're probably find yourself drinking your Pinot Gris on your own quite quickly. And we actually need to do some digging to understand what Peter means when he says a royal priesthood. What was their role and what context is Peter using? Now in the ancient world, temples were established to the gods. And within the gods was placed an idol or an image of the god that was dedicate, the temple was dedicated to, commonly known as an idol. So in the temple dedicated to Baal, there was an idol of Baal. Um, it would have been crafted by craftsmen. And because there were many gods in the ancient world, there were many uh, different temples and many different statues of um, these gods. And the purpose of these gods, uh, or these idols, sorry, was to carry the essence of God. It was a physical representation of the God for the people as they came to worship and offer their ritualistic sacrifices. And the making of these idols was done in a really specific way. The craftsman or artisan would fashion them out of wood or stone or whatever material they were using. Uh, then the artisan would symbolically, I had to um, clarify this to Graham because he thought I meant literally when I was practicing, symbolically cut off their own hands and throw away their tools um, to portray the message that they didn't create the idol. Um, they believed that it was actually a divine process um, from God but made on earth. And through another ritualistic process, they would do something called the opening of the mouth ritual, which is then when they would invite the spirit of the god, or the essence of the god, to come and breathe and live within the idol. After then, they, watched the, they believed that the idol was a living being. Uh, they believed it could smell and eat and drink. And that's where the priest comes in. The priest was to stay in the temple and to look after the living idol, the living idol. They would offer it food, they would sing it songs and entertain it, they would wash it, they would put it to bed at night. Um, and the priest isn't the only one who would give, offer the idol food. The people who came in to worship, of course, would offer food sacrifices to those wooden and stone idols. And as Westerners in the 21st century, we often kind of smirk at this because, well, they would, and we don't believe the essence of God's come into these wooden idols. But this treatment of idols is actually still around in some cultures today. Some of you will remember the milk-drinking idol in India in September 1995 when a worshipper offered a teaspoon of milk to a stone elephant, which is a statue of Ganesha, I think I've pronounced it correctly, an idol in the Hindu religion. And it looks a little bit like a stone elephant. 
Oh no, sorry, I'm a little bit behind with my slides. This is a temple. These are some carved idols representing the gods. Uh, that first one is from the Hittite region. I can't remember the date. And that other one is um, a figurine of Baal, and it's a temple to Baal. So this is the elephant. Oh, I really am behind. But this is Ganesha. This is the stone elephant I was talking about. Um, and incredibly, the milk disappeared. News spread quickly about this, around this miracle with mass hysteria. hysteria. Does anyone believe? remember this happening? I remember it happening on the news. Mass hysteria developed, and people all over the world started offering Ganesha idols milk. And I found this quote on the internet. The reported miracle had a significant effect on the areas around major temples. Vehicle and pedestrian traffic in New Delhi was dense enough to create a gridlock lasting until late in the evening. Many stores in the areas with significant Hindu communities saw a massive jump in sales of milk, with one gateway store in England selling over 25,000 pints of milk, and overall milk sales in New Delhi jumped over 30%. Many minor temples struggled to deal with the vast increase in numbers, and queues spilled out into the streets, reaching distances over a mile. The popular, I'm not going to pronounce that, temple decided to close its gates with a large notice saying that its Ganesha idol did not drink milk. (laughs) And you can actually Google and find out the scientific uh, reasons for why the milk might have disappeared. Um, If you know anything about capillary action, that might give you a few clues. But just as some of these religious cultures do today believe, the ancient people knew that these idols had been physically made by the craftsmen, but they believed that the idols genuinely contained the presence of the gods. And they would perform all sorts of ritualistic worship in front of them in divination processes in order to communicate with the god and, and try and get wisdom or guidance from the god in return. So when we understand that context and that this is the normal way of things in the ancient world, suddenly we see some of these Old Testament scriptures coming to life. We see God communicating with his people in a language and an imagery that they were familiar with. Remember the creation account. We read about the Garden of Eden being created as God's temple. And when you dig a bit deeper into that text, which we unfortunately don't have time to do today, you'll actually see a lot of temple imagery in the garden Um, But the key is to see that God creates not an idol to represent himself or to carry his essence, but mankind. Adam and Eve were created and placed in that temple, the Garden of Eden. And what does he specifically say about mankind as he created them? We will make them in our likeness. They will be our image bearers. And this is why God specifically prohibits any idols or statues This is why God specifically prohibits any idols or statues to be built in his image, because God has made mankind as his image. We are his idols, so to speak. And then remember, after he had made Adam from the dust, which is like clay, he breathed his spirit into him and Adam became alive. And the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. There should be an echo for us as we understand this background ritualistic idol making. But here God is not making a lifeless idol of clay. But he is using human beings. He has created us, his living children, and he's breathed his life into us. We are to mediate or carry his presence, not some lifeless idol. Isn't this so cool? This is part of who we are. We are the people of God made to represent his image, made to mediate his likeness in the world, to show the world who God is. 
We're made to reflect his goodness and his holiness, taking his presence wherever we go, wherever we work, wherever we live. But not only that, we're actually also called to be his priests. This is where the verse from 1 Peter 2.9 comes in. We are a chosen we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And as a royal priesthood, we are called to look after and care for the other images of God, i.e. everyone else. We are, medi- we are to mediate God's presence, carrying his presence wherever we go, and look after one another. If you're not sure if this is biblical, what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbour as yourself. Love, love, yeah. This is what it means to be a royal priesthood. For the nation of Israel, they were chosen not because they had done anything special, but because God had chosen them to be his priests, his mediators to the rest of the world, to make him known to all the other people groups and to expose their gods as truly false and dead, their idols as truly lifeless. In a world that was foreign to the rest of the world, and to the, yeah, the rest of the world was really survival of the fittest and kill the tribe next door and you know, be the strongest defeat the weak and the church was called to be someone very different and it's the call for us today too isn't it to reflect the beauty of God to all peoples to tell the truth of who he is but we've got a problem we know that we are tarnished images of God we have fallen short and none of us truly reflect the face of God brilliantly at the best of times I know I don't and after the fall there was a separation between humanity and the presence of God and we were made Uh, Still as God's image bearers, but the presence of God could not dwell within us in the way that it was originally intended, or as we know it today. Remember, God's presence was separated from the people and it was represented by fire. It's the best picture of fire I could find. And the burning bush with Moses, and then the top of Mount Sinai, and then when Moses was given the Torah. And then as the people were led through the wilderness by a single pillar of fire. And finally, it comes to rest in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies when the people reached the promised land. So there's a separation there, and we know that the only person who could truly carry the presence of God and represent him in human flesh was Christ. Colossians 1.15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But Jesus was the firstborn of the new humanity, and remember he told the disciples that they would carry the presence of God in a new way too, after he had gone back to the Father in order that the role of the image-bearing royal priesthood might be re-established. Jesus is the only true, flawless representation of God, but he calls us, through grace, and able through his death and resurrection, to stand with him and to mediate his presence once more. I'm going to show you a clip from the Bible Project. Has anyone seen much from the Bible Project before? It's a really great resource. It's free. Um, It's basically this group of uh, Americans who have put together short five to six minute clips of each book of the Bible uh, and then these mini-series and they explain stuff really well and for those of you who find it hard to read the Old Testament this is a great resource so I'm going to uh, leave you with Chris okay. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus who's just come back to life which is my glory to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus been teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait, to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power, so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, 
then move out to Judea and Samaria, and from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when his power is going to come. And then comes the time of cost. So there was an ancient Israelite festival during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament thing. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire that filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. Well, what's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hope based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of Israel. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them, they ate their meals together, they said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. Many mobile temples, images of God filled with his presence, an explosion out of Jerusalem like a shockwave into the world, called the church. The presence of God that was the, that was the fire at the top of Mount Sinai that went ahead of the people in the wilderness, that image now being above every individual believer's head at Pentecost, meaning that it is now above your head when you follow Jesus Christ. You take that presence into the world. You are missional. You are part of the royal priesthood. It's not just a one-time thing at Pentecost. It's above your head too. You are missional. You are part of that church, part of that story. Isn't that amazing? Being a priest is a deeply missional role. We often think of mission of those people who go overseas to Africa and other nations where they're involved in mission work. But it's good to be reminded that we're missionaries every day as God's priests and as its image bearers. In fact, we can't actually help but be missional, whether we want to be or not. But before true mission can flow from us, mission must come to us. The Spirit of God, the breath of God, must come and fill us to enable us to be missional, to be his priesthood. And we saw this at Pentecost. 
And we saw that it was such a special thing that the church could then go out as missionaries and live as true priests and as image bearers in the world again so that the world would truly know who he is. The Spirit of God no longer needs to live in a temple. as a burning fire, but within each of us, within each of you. His breath comes upon us to bring us alive, his church alive, so that we can mediate his presence in an even more profound way and bring others to know Christ for themselves. This is just so incredible, and it kind of blows me away every time I think about this. In the ancient world, gods weren't believed to love the people. They were punishing the people as soon as someone did something wrong. But our God is not like that. Humanity falls further and further from him, and he pursues us relentlessly, so much so that he made a way through his sacrifice of his son to restore us as his spirit-filled people, making us his own temple. Not only that, but he adopts us as his family. So we're not only the priesthood, but we are the royal priesthood. Sometimes we forget the gravity of this, I think. So let's summarise where we've got to. At the beginning, we asked who we are. Well, we've discovered that we are the beginning, we are the people of God because God has called us to be his people and his image bearers. We have been given this priestly role in the world. We are broken and we are fallen apart. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot even dimly begin to reflect his presence. We are dead and empty vessels like the idols without his spirit breathed into us. But we are saved by grace. And Jesus places on us cloaks of righteousness and we are restored forever. And Graham's going to speak more to this next week. But just because he's, he's breathed this life into us doesn't mean that we only, it's only a one-shot wonder. We actually need to have God's presence come to us daily. Um, we need to be breathed on for that life. And now, you know, now that we know who we are, we can begin to answer why we are here as a church. And I'm just going to, as I close, touch on two reasons. There are plenty more, of course, but just two that we need to grasp today. And the first is to be refilled with the Holy Spirit so that we can live as his true image bearers. And part of our purpose for meeting today and every week uh, is so that we can ask for God's Spirit to breathe up on us in a fresh way. Something happens powerfully when we worship together in the presence of one another and in the presence of God together as a group. And just as the ancient people worshipped in front of the idols, we are worshipping together in front of the other image bearers of God. Um, and if we don't make a habit of asking for God's Spirit to fill us, we become, as I said, lifeless wooden idols. The Spirit, the Christian life, is actually reduced to an endless treadmill of striving and failing uh, because we always fall short and we cannot be God's presence, priests sorry, and image bearers without His Spirit. We cannot live fulfilled lives uh, with richness and fullness that he intended for us without his spirit. And I, I heard a really tragic story recently, which I um, thought I'd just share with you. I've got a very good friend called Heather who lives in uh, Tauranga. And um, we were chatting about a friend who we've got in common, and I said to her, oh, how's such and such going? And she said, oh, she's doing really good now. And I thought, oh, has she recovered from a breakup, or has she recovered from an, a really bad illness, or wasn't quite sure what she was going to say. And she said, oh, no, she's, uh, she's dropped her faith. And I was a little bit shocked and I confused actually. And Heather explained that this girl um, had gotten so sick of attending church services and being involved in this group and that group and serving here and there and going to cell group each week and she felt so tired um, from it all and she was so sick of not being able to measure up at the end of it that she decided to quit it and do her own thing. Well it sounds to me that she was living a life of striving and not a life of deep relationship with God. 
with his spirit giving her her identity and her strength and the life. This is what happens when we try to do it on our own. Um, It's actually utterly miserable and enslaving, and it's not life-giving at all. And this is not what God designed your life to be like. You might look like pretty Christians on the outside, but inside you feel like a a hollow idol, performing ritualistic worship each week and dying on the inside. If I can encourage anyone here today, don't ditch your faith, but ditch the striving and ask for God to breathe his spirit on you fresh again, give you the life that you so desperately desire. And the second reason we gather together uh, is for community. That's to uh, fulfil our priestly role. We need to look after one another. As the priest did, we need to look after the other representations of God. And people often talk about going to church with consumer language. What did we get out of it? What did we, how did we think the worship was? What did we take away from the message? Uh, it's true, we need to uh, be filled and fed and grown and encouraged from these different parts of the church service. But we also need to get it for the encouragement of one another. Uh, it's part of loving one another. Many weekly meetings um, means we can uh, form relationships with one another and kind of share a bit of life together. And that's partly why hospitality is such a core value for us. Meeting together around pizza is just as important as fellowshipping. Because then we get to share each other's lives and and hear what's going on if we open up and and are vulnerable, as the case may be. And I've needed to remind myself on Sundays, I'm going to church now, how can I bless and encourage someone rather than what am I going to get out of it? Listening to podcasts at home is not going to grow the body of Christ. It's certainly a great supplement and a tool, but it's not a stable diet. And as it says on our welcome cards, if you've read them at the moment, or read them already, God created us in community. We were never meant to do this journey alone. And I'm just going to uh, close with the illustration that a lot of you probably have already heard about the burning coals, where there were two men sitting around a fire, probably drinking whiskey, uh, one was a pastor and the other was a man who was questioning whether he should continue going to church. And he said he thought he could be quite a good Christian outside of the church. Um, in fact, he just saw that any problems within the church. And he would be quite happy reading it and spending time in prayer at home. And he didn't need other people to do that. And the pastor said nothing. He just simply reached into the fire with his tongs and pulled out a burning coal. And he set it on the hearth away from the fire. And both men watched as the burning ember reduced to a mere flicker going black and dead. He looked at the man, and the man understood. The pastor then placed the the coal back in the fire, and after a few minutes, it was um, red and glowing and hot again amongst the heat of the glowing coals around it. And as as he left, the man said to the pastor, thank you for your company and for your fiery sermon. I'll be back in church next Sunday. See, we need the zeal and the passion of others to keep us hot, to inspire us, And actually, as we are inspired and encouraged, we are inspiring and encouraging other people around us. Um, So it's a a beautiful relationship. So that's it for today. Over the next few weeks, as I said, we're going to dig more into what does it actually look like to have spirit-filled lives. And we're going to finish with just a couple of songs now. And I'd invite you, if you are... um, Well, actually, we all need a fresh touch of God's spirit. Uh, But if you haven't done so recently... um, then I'd, I'd encourage you to take this opportunity to stand with your hands open and just to invite God's presence to come and fill you again um, with his presence so that you can be the priest, the royal priesthood that he's called you to be. Let's not become lifeless and striving and burdened by our faith, but 
Let's be the joyful royal priesthood that God has called us to be, reflecting his presence around to all simply by living in his grace and his